Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com you are now listening to postmortem with mick garris where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director writer and producer now here's your host mick garris from Nice Guy Productions headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. What did you do during the pandemic? Yes, I know it's not over yet, and as a matter of fact, just as I'm recording this, Los Angeles has just reinstituted the mask mandate. But life is slowly getting back to an altered new normal. People are going back to work, getting on planes, traveling, going to restaurants and movies. It's been bad. I've had a couple of friends hit hard by the virus, even spending a couple of months on a ventilator in the hospital. Film and television production has resumed, though not at 100%. Friends have been shooting in Canada, where there's been a two-week hotel quarantine for traveling cast and crew before they can report to work. Production protocols have tightened, and filmmaking has hopefully gotten safer. But at least for a year or so, work and play have been at a standstill. How have you been handling it? For me, it's been a time of writing rather than directing, writing stories and screenplays, creating series Bibles, hiking, reading, watching movies at home, eating lots of takeout. The international film festivals that occupied so much of my travel time are all in the rearview mirror, though I have glimpses of a couple of future ones in my sights. What about you? How has life in the time of pandemic changed for you? Has working by Zoom completely changed your occupation? Do you interface remotely or in person with coworkers? Have you used the time to seek out new directions of creativity and discovery? Have you started learning a new language or taking art classes? Our guest today, Neil Blomkamp, the mastermind behind such visual feasts as District 9, Elysium, and Chappie, really made the most of his social distancing. Using a tiny cast and crew, he made a movie on a much smaller and more intimate scale than we're used to from him, creating something during the coronavirus under safe and intimate conditions. We'll talk about his work on movies big and small after this. Available now from Dread, Howling Village. From the visionary director of The Grudge and The Grudge 2 comes Howling Village where, after her brother goes missing, a young psychologist visits an infamous haunted and cursed location known as, what else, Howling Village, to investigate his disappearance and uncover her family's dark history. 
Howling Village will be available on demand everywhere and on Blu-ray September 14th. Also coming soon to dread, Bad Candy. On Halloween night in New Salem, radio DJs Chili Billy, Corey Taylor, and Paul, Zach Galligan, tell a twisted anthology of terrifying local myths that lead to a grim end for small-town residents. So if you love Slipknot, Gremlins, and horror, this is the film for you. Bad Candy is coming out in theaters and on demand September 14th and on Blu-ray October 10th. Before we get started, I'd like to let you know about a new book that has been published. It is actually Abby Bernstein's biography of yours truly. ATB Publishing has decided that such a volume was worth publishing, and I'll never understand why. But it's called Master of Horror, the official biography of yours truly, Mick Garris. And it is available at atbpublishing.com. You can get signed copies at Dark Delicacies at darkdell.com. And uh, all around the place. So I'm humbled by this and delighted at the same time. And I hope if you check it out that you'll enjoy it. Thanks. So, Neil, great to have you on the slab. Thank you for joining us. Uh, you Thank you. Are I like the idea of being on the slab. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you're one of us, Google Gobble, right? Yeah. So, so <laughs> y- you live in Canada, but you you were born in South Africa in Johannesburg, uh, and went to high school there. And your interest in film started early on. What what was the film industry in South Africa like when you were a teenager and and just really starting to get your bones in in what movie making was all about? Well, I mean, it's a really interesting question because when I lived in South Africa, you know, I, I moved, I moved at the end of high school. I was basically 18 by the time I got to Canada. So I, my, my sort of teenage years were spent in, in Johannesburg. And it was only when I landed in Canada that I think I very quickly realized that I could actually work in the film industry. I'm not completely sure that it had occurred to me in South Africa that I would, that I would actually be able to work in film. So, you know, pre-1997, because I, I moved in 97, um, I, I, I have no idea what the South African film industry was in fact like, because, uh, and, and even if I did know what it was like, it probably didn't interest me. You know, everything that I loved was, was predominantly American or, or European. So um, the irony is that over, over 10 years of being out of South Africa, it was, it was you know, District 9 in South African um, culture that kind of drew me back to uh, wanting, I guess, to create films that were about where I had, I had come from. So there was sort of a full loop in there. But you know, I think I think if I'd grown up in in Southern California or I'd grown up in Vancouver, it it I I, I would probably be a filmmaker that would be interested in all of the same topics, less the South African, the history of Africa and the history of Southern Africa. So you know, I really, I guess that's really what happened was I, I had subconsciously just in, ingested everything that was around me. And by the time I was old enough to make a film about something, it started looking like my, my interest in the place I had come from had sort of taken over. Well, a lot of your film work, if not most of your film work, seems to both have a sociological and a technological bent where they mm. 
crash up against each other. And it isn't often that a filmmaker has a recurring theme along sociological lines like that. Do you attribute that maybe to your South African background? Yeah, I mean, almost certainly. Um, it's, it's not easy to grow up in that country and not be aware of class warfare and segregation. Um, it's just woven into the fabric of how the country works. So there's no question that it had an indelible you know, effect on me that is not going anywhere anytime soon. Um, and I also, I also think, I think as I get older now, I'm, I, and, and I've said a lot of what I wanted to kind of express about that topic. I think that there's, I, I, I see myself going down other avenues now, like um, that, that, that has less to do with those topics. Well, once you moved to Vancouver at 18, mm -hmm. you almost immediately went into film school, right? You went to yeah. the Vancouver Film School, which is a really good, practical, prestigious film school in Vancouver. And what led to that? I almost got uh, expelled from Vancouver Film School, actually, to be honest. <laughs> well, there you go. For multiple different reasons. But the, the one reason that is probably the most uh, pressing was that I set off the fire alarm and I'm still not entirely sure why. Like I, I just sort of pulled the lever on the wall and then the school was evacuated. I don't really know why I did that. <laughs> because the lever was there to pull? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, they, they showed me like black and white footage of me pulling it, which I guess, um, yeah, it was strange. So yeah, I have a, I have a complex history with, with Vancouver Film School. But I, I mean, I think what happened was when I was in South Africa, I, I, I started gravitating towards you know, again, not thinking I could ever work in the film industry, but um, having uh, having an immense interest in film in general and and uh, specifically um, model making and prosthetic effects. And then as computer graphics began to take off, uh, I started, you know, I, I started to skew more towards computer graphics, just again, without any defined goal. It was just a case of being creative. And back then in the 90s, uh, Silicon Graphics out of California was the predominant computer company that, you know, you needed that level of hardware to be able to run um, programs like Alias or, or Wavefront. And I talked myself into SGI uh, Southern Africa and somehow got on their computers. You know, I, I don't know, I'm still not sure how I did that. <laughs> and, and I kind of started messing around with, with Alias and like early particle systems and, and things that were just the the beginning of, well, not the beginning, because back then it was like Jurassic Park had come out and Terminator 2 and The Abyss had come out. Um, but I could, you know, I was just completely drawn to film in every single different way. Um, and also sculpting and, uh, you know, prosthetic effects was, was the other thing. And so when I got to Canada, it was still a case of like, well, I wonder eventually what my job will be. And I almost moved back to South Africa just because I missed Johannesburg. And uh, somehow, you know, got into Vancouver Film School and then just very quickly I realized that people were in fact making an income working in visual effects and animation. And so that's kind of how it started for me. So it's a very rare route to becoming a director going through the technical end, especially mm -hmm. as a CG animator or doing prosthetic effects and the like. But you quickly found success doing doing computer animation uh, for commercials uh, and various other things that led you into the director's chair. Um, tell me a little bit about the work. I know Stargate was based in Vancouver and, and you worked on shows like that and, and uh, Jim Cameron's series. Um, Adel Angel. 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Dark Angel. I guess Dark he has two, two Angel films. Yeah. Uh, two Angel IPs. Yeah, I, I, what happened was I got, there was a, a person who's remained a close friend of mine for all these years, was, was one of my teachers at VFS, Trevor Kaywood. And, um, uh, you know, the, again, going back to like me on the verge of being expelled the whole time, he was teaching, <laughs> he was teaching one of the classes that I was just kind of a bit AWOL in. Um, but I, he was working in the film industry in visual effects and he was like look I can definitely get you a job in this if if you want to aim yourself at you know uh, a visual effects career and I met the company that he worked for which I ended up working for which at the time was called Rainmaker Visual Effects in Vancouver and I remember them yeah yeah and and you know I also I, I made a bunch of other friends that uh that we actually formed another company called the Embassy Visual Effects out of a group of us that left that company um, a few years after after I joined, but in that that period was a, a massive U turn in my life, just creatively and in terms of um, like the it was a sort of blue sky, open world of opportunity as far as I could tell, um, because I looked at filmmakers like Ridley Scott and Fincher, and uh, they had come out of commercials and music videos, and I loved commercials and music videos. You know, some of my some of the some of my favorite. Um, forms of expression back then were these more bite-sized chunks of, of creativity, um, like uh, Chris Cunningham's effects uh, Twin music videos and Otakra, you know, all of that stuff was incredible. So I was like, okay, well, I guess if these guys did commercials, I should probably do commercials and then um, move into film. So direct, directing film was always the goal. Um, it was never anything other than directing film, but there were sort of stepping stones along the way. So one of the things I remember really clearly was we worked on a whole bunch of TV movies and we did visual effects on them. And there was one that we did called, um, it was called Aftershock, Earthquake in New York. I was offered that movie. <laughs> really? No, no kidding. That would have been amazing if you had directed that. Well, um, <laughs> and And I was, you know, I was modeling just like, shit tons of broken new york skyscrapers like we had taken skyscrapers and then you know i would tear the front of them off and we'd build the the scaffolding and, and floor structure and then fracture them as though and, and the, you know a high richter scale earthquake had torn up new york and uh we the production was shooting plate photography in vancouver um you know where they'd set up 35 mil cameras and they were moving them against building facades where they built the bottom floor of the building and then above it we would be doing the extension and it was the first time i was really on set and the vfx supervisor let me basically direct or control the way that we were using the camera on set which was on a fisher dolly and you know had a proper focus puller and everything else attached to it and it i couldn't believe that you know, everything that I'd sort of learned in computer graphics of moving cameras and lighting and everything else just applied straight over to the real world. And, but I hadn't really done it in that way. I'd done it with, back then it was uh, high eight video cameras that I just had like lying all over my place and I just would shoot everything on high eight. But as soon as it was 35 mil, it kind of became more real. And, the, and also the weight and scale of the dolly and like how the camera moved was just different. And I just knew that was, there was no question that all I wanted to do was be on set and be doing that. And that turned into, um, it turned into music videos where, you know, you could just shoot a ton and kind of get familiar with everything, you know? Like I remember when I was about 19, I think I was 19, I directed my first video, which had a decent budget. And I remember uh, the focus puller telling me um, that it was, that it was in fact tilt up and not pan up. 
because I kept saying pan up. <laughs> yes. and, and, and back then with, with computer graphics, it was like you were just talking about degrees of rotation, right, in X or Y. So right. it, wasn't, it wasn't really a case of, there, you know, there were no technical on-set terms. And I didn't really give a shit what they were. Yeah. yeah, it's like, I mean, I, I'm still like that. I, I don't give two shits about process. Like, I only care about the results. But it was, it was kind of awesome uh, going through, you know, this, this transitionary period. And then I kept scaling my visual effects hours down until eventually the company was like, no, you cannot work one day a week. <laughs> And I was like, okay, well, I guess, I guess I'm directing music videos full time. And then the jump to commercials is a, you know, is, is another thing, but I started, I started really um, using visual effects in stuff that I was shooting. And I was, I was obsessed with sort of science fiction hyper-realism. So, and I kept going back to South Africa all the time and my sort of interest in the place I'd come from was growing. And then I was also seeing family and I was also seeing friends. And I shot this piece where I dropped a computer generated robot into it. And this was at the point where handheld um, footage and, and the use of visual effects and handheld footage was unusual. Yeah. So yeah, so that piece kind of took off and, and I sent it to a, a much bigger commercial production company than I had ever worked, worked for before in Toronto called Spy Films. And they signed me. Um, and so then I could sort of scale up the commercial sizes I was doing. And from there, I got signed with Ridley Scott's company, with RSA in Los Angeles. Uh, and through RSA, I got an amazing agent at WME, um, Ari Emanuel, who got me onto Halo with Peter Jackson. So it was a sort of a succession of just, you know. Well, yeah. it, it goes back to the work with that Fisher Dolly. And I imagine you went through motion control headaches and the like, but mm -hmm. it, it's become sort of, um, a, a signature of yours, uh, a lot of handheld use with CG, which mm -hmm. is much more difficult to do than with, you know, static shots or a, 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 a dolly um, because of all your, your um, focal points mm -hmm. and the constant moving of that. But it seems to have become a signature. Is that because of the freedom it gave you to, to really do anything you want in the frame? I think, I mean, you know, a lot of the time with, with any artistic endeavor in general, I'm always very weary of artists who can over intellectualize stuff. And it's, it's, I, I, I prefer art and I prefer stuff that comes from me to be much more intuitive and sort of somewhat unexplainable. But I think that my, I think the answer to that question is I'm very interested in trying to present the most the most convincing and hyper real version of something fantastical the more fantastical it is presented more mundanely hmm. the more the more of a kick i get out of it you know both as a creator and also as a viewer um so that's probably the reason but the motion control headaches are i mean i want nothing to do with that you know <laughs> I, I that was back when i was doing vfx it was i mean you referenced james cameron's dark angel and if you look at the i mean i only worked on the first season and i'm not really sure where it went but if you look at the opening shot of of jessica alba on the space needle in seattle my the same friend that i was saying pretty much hired me who was teaching me at vfs the same friend that i did that shot of her on the space needle and um and that was all motion control because we had to line it up with with jessica alba shoot her and then 
you know, uh, use our motion control for to place her into into our three D environment. So the the sort of the data of our CG camera lined up with the data of the onset setup. Of course, now today you would just you would just shoot her however you want and drop her in and track it. Right. Um, and then we went to Seattle and we needed to get a ton of texture photos of the Space Needle. And he actually went out on on safety equipment and kind of walked the perimeter of it with the VFX supervisor. And I couldn't stomach doing that uh, just because I have a fear of heights. So that didn't work out. But yeah, motion control, I want nothing to do with. Anything that just kind of gets in the way of the production like that is it's not cool. Well, I, I had to deal with those headaches on sleepwalkers and, and again on riding the bullet and a couple other things. And yeah. it is such a pain in the ass. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the uh, Stargate stages you used were the stages we shot Masters of Horror on for two seasons. When, when did you shoot that? That was 2015 through two, or 2005 through 2007. Okay. And it was uh, right after Dark Angel as well, because Toby Hooper shot part of his episode on that dystopian village, yeah. the city set there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But you, you're talking about um, Terminal City. Yeah. Yeah, Terminal City is where yeah. Toby shot his episode. So you know, you know what's really insane? This is totally crazy. I shot a whole bunch of music videos there. I mean, besides the film, uh, the film and TV visual effects that I was doing, I, I, sh I shot and directed a whole bunch of my own uh, stuff and music videos at Terminal City. And then fast forward to 2015, when my brother and I started Oat Studios, which is this insane you know, experimental studio, um, we, we actually, we just sold it a couple of days ago, but we actually bought an office that was in the corner of where Terminal City would have uh -huh. been, where I did hair and makeup, like, you know, for that, that's kind of where we would always base hair and makeup. And that whole place was destroyed and this new modern structure was put up with a whole bunch of units. And we had one that was our Oats studio for like a, a year or two. I mean, it, that was a really strange circle, you know? So if you go there now, it just looks like a sort of Santa Monica style modern um, uh, tech building. Well, tell me a little about Oats Studios. That seemed, you mentioned it's an experimental uh, production house. Is that where you kind of grow crops of ideas to turn into features is kind of a brewery for your imagination? No, not really. It's, it's, it's definitely a place of just uh, like an uh, imaginative, you know, sandbox to go and play, but, um, but they're not meant to be turned into features. I've, I've always thought of, of Oats as being explicitly never touching Hollywood. So the goal was to try to sell more shorts or films online um, digitally to the audience in a way that would never touch any streaming or Hollywood studio. So it's, so, um, but for now you can think of it like just a, a creative, you know, playpen of, of stuff. Right. Where it's unmitigated by commercial forces. Yeah. Like hence cooking with Bill. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you, you mentioned Peter Jackson and Halo and mm -hmm. that did not happen. Yeah. Uh, tell, tell me about how that process kept going because it was percolating for a long time before it finally uh, nosedove. Yeah, I mean, it was also percolating with Guillermo del Toro, who had gone down to New Zealand and, and spent, you know, a bunch of time and a bunch of money uh, getting ready to direct that movie. I'm not, I, I've, I'm not actually sure why Guillermo didn't stay on it. I don't really know what the reason is for that. But um, when I came on board, uh, I mean, that was, that was another sort of 
marker in my life where you know just seeing what 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 peter had built and what what a workshop and what a digital and and the kind of this very creative ecosystem that that existed in in wellington uh it was a real awesome eye-opening amazing amazing time for me but i i sort of inherited the project from guillermo and i spent a long time you know going through uh, design. We knew there were certain staple elements that would stay in the in the film, but we hadn't really locked in on a story and a script yet. And it was in the process of of hiring writers and beginning to actually get that nailed down, where the the whole production just sort of spiraled out of control. And I think it was it was a combination of multiple factors. But when you have Microsoft taking a bunch of the profits, and then you also have a co-production between Fox and, and Universal, there was. It, you know, it was just split too many ways in terms of control and in terms of profits. And they, they didn't, they, it just fractured really. So that would have been your first feature film. Yeah. But in a way it was kind of fortuitous because you and Peter decided to join forces mm -hmm. on District 9, which was your first feature film. Yeah. You wrote it, you wrote it with your wife, Terry Tetchell, and were nominated for an Oscar for the screenplay, but you went from being a an effects tech mm -hmm. to a guy who directed uh, commercials mm -hmm. and music videos. And now your first feature film, you made it in South Africa, but it's acquired by a major studio. It's supported by a major studio. And you had a big Hollywood hit on your hands. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was massively, you know, it was, it was luck, I think, hugely to be to, to be given the opportunity by Peter and by Fran. Um, you know, Fran, I think whether it was Pete or it was Fran, both of them kind of assumed the day Halo collapsed, they came back and said, what, what else do you want to make? And I'd, I'd shot a short film called Alive in Joburg, which was beginning to express these, these ideas of, of xenophobia in South Africa through, through science fiction. And I showed it to them and they both said, okay, like let's, let's turn that into a film. And I mean, it's, you know, blind luck that you can get people like that behind you, supporting you, and then start working to, to turn it into, into a viable story. I think that the time that it really clicked for me was, you know, it, because ultimately everything just comes down to character and story. I mean, there really isn't anything else. Um, and it was the, it was the, uh, Sholto who acted in it, um, I knew that he was incredibly good at, at improvising and just sort of messing around. You know, he would he would do that uh, with the people that worked for him and just in social situations, he was just kind of very good at impersonating people. And I think when it clicked for me was a combination of getting Shalto to do a test. Like I, I went and shot a test with him to show to Peter and Fran of what this Afrikaans character would be like in a, in a science fiction setting. And when you combine that level of, of improvisation with this idea of the oppressor becoming the oppressed, which actually is kind of like the fly since you're connected to the fly too. It's, yeah. it, it, it's very the fly, right? It's very Kafka-esque and trans, transformative. And so you, we were using a sort of science fiction and uh, metaphorical parable of transformation that instantly clicked for me. It, cl it kind of clicked for everyone where it was like, I, I understand what the character is going through. Um, and the moment that that happened, the film really fell into place, you know, quite easily in terms of story. 
but it, 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 you know, it was, it was difficult to shoot. It was very difficult to make that film. Well, it seems to be. Not only is it a scale much larger than I'm sure is belied by the budget, but um, just the political situation and, and the vastness of it. Tell me the complications of that shoot and what made it uh, such a heavy burden. Well, I mean, I think, you know, there were, there were multiple different things. The, the one thing that was definitely amazing was, was Peter uh, shielded me entirely from the studio. I mean, if I got any notes, they were from Pete. And, um, nice. which is incredible. And, you know, the, I mean, again, the, the, the chance of that film happening, if you think about it, is just absolutely insane. Like first time director, first time actor, set in South Africa with a budget of $30 million about aliens, you know, um, the ties to xenophobia. I mean, it's like the chance of that getting made is incredibly slim. Uh, but I think probably the biggest, the biggest thing was when you, when you have, when you're shooting in an, a totally improvised style like that and you have uh, handheld cameras and the area that we were shooting in was an area of Soweto, um, you know, which was difficult to get in and out of and heavily polluted. Uh, and you, we had to, you know, we had security concerns and we sort of had to travel in as a convoy and travel out as a convoy. Uh, when you mix that also with it being your first film, it just, it was just a, a very tumultuous time, you know, but I also could tell that it was a time that I would never forget, <laughs> which, you know, which was, which was true. <laughs> So tell me about the writing process, how you and your wife worked on this and how long it took. And, and you'd had, you'd already made a short film with the same basic thesis. Yeah. But tell me, tell me how you, you um, made it bloom together. Well, I mean, it really just comes down to the idea of once, once what I was saying about this, this idea of a character that transforms and becomes oppressed um, and wears the other shoe, you know, it, once you have that, then the framework for the story just becomes right. We didn't, we, we did have a screenplay, but we also had almost like a document. The, the way that I would do it with Shalto was, and I, I kind of want to do this going forward with other Im improvised movies, is you kind of, you discuss what the meaning of the scene is, and then you shoot based on getting that meaning across. And, and often the first few improvised sessions are too long. And you kind of pick the, the areas that you really like, and then you, you throw out the stuff that doesn't work. And, and so by take three or four, you're in a zone where it feels insanely um, natural and realistic because of how you got there, but it's also conveying what it needs to convey on a story level. And so in order to get there, uh, Terry and I wrote uh, a document and a screenplay that would sort of, you know, would, would, would get us there. And, and in the process of getting to those documents, you really just go through more of a standard procedure of what do the characters want? You know, what are they looking for? Um, are, do you have turning points that feel natural and sort of derived by character, but also are satiating what the audience is looking for, you know, the middle of the second act or your turn into the third act. And yeah, I mean, it's a standard process, I guess. So, well, not so standard if you're doing so much improvisation, but um, especially when you've got a group of actors that are all interacting with one another and still trying to achieve that same goal. Yeah. How, long, how long do you spend in, in the morning with your rehearsals before you start to hone in on what the scene is? I don't think we ever rehearsed anything. 
and I mean, I still don't really rehearse stuff. Like I just don't really, like. I, I'm, I'm such a massive believer in just trying to capture, it's like this, this authenticity that comes when you just do it the first time. And I like being surprised by stuff and sort of working with it. And I think if you over rehearse things, you can, you can bring a staleness to it. I mean, I'm just speaking for me. I'm not speaking for like other directors, obviously, because everyone, everyone has a radically different style, but I definitely tend to want to capture something that feels the most raw and surprising. And I kind of go after that. Um, the difference with District 9, though, was because it was completely improv uh, and some of the actors were OK with it and others were less OK. It kind of it created a very volatile environment. Um, but I mean, obviously, we did we did cost going in knowing that we would be doing improv. So yeah, all of the all of the um, the costing sessions were based on improvised you know, moments where people would just. <laughs> would, would operate with no script. I mean, I would describe making that film as somewhat chaotic. <laughs> well, it shows in a positive sense because yeah. what's going on in front of the cameras is chaotic as well. Yeah. Yeah, um, it has it has a it has an energy and a dynamism about it. I think that comes from that. Well, tell me about telling the first full-length story on film that you did because you've done lots of short things where um you you have images, you have feelings, you have uh, moments, but here's one that you're going from point A to point Z, mm. and you have to do all the the roller coasters and valleys and hills and yeah. make it, make it a, a two hour movie. Tell me about that experience for the first time for you. I mean, you know, I I'm, I think features really kind of make sense to me. I think television makes less sense to me in in the sense that it's much I feel like there's a there's a sort of DNA and the mythology of how a three-act structure story works that really clicks with me so I wasn't I didn't have any sort of daunting problem about doing a feature film or, or maintaining um holding on to the story in my head in a way that I was scaling up to the size of a two-hour movie and everything else I I had done had been short uh it was more the thing that was more that I was more aware of and was more daunting was you know, like an alien at the beginning when Ridley shows you the ship and he shows you all of the elements and the crew is in cryostasis and he has that little bird that, that is on, it's sort of almost like a metronome that's on its little uh, weighted, you know, gyro that it's moving mm -hmm. back and forward with. It's these sorts of interstitial shots that, that I, I and, and District 9 is a different kind of movie. It doesn't, it doesn't use things the same way, but it was the idea of how do you, what are the shots that are required in order that when you're sitting in the edit bay, you have enough firepower in the footage that you've shot that you can, you can compose the, the scenes to flow between one another in a way that will feel cinematic and, and, and create what I'm looking for, because I hadn't done it on that scale before. And I, I remember really thinking hard about that, that I, uh, that I needed to get that right, you know, and it's, it, it, that felt quite daunting, that it's like, you could potentially end up with, with something that just didn't gel together cinematically the way that I wanted it to. Uh, so that brought, I think, more, more conscious thought than, than, than worrying about where I was in terms of a two hour story. And how many, how many days did you shoot? I think it was, I think all in all, I think it was 70 days, but I think we shot about 50 and then we sort of regrouped and shot 20. Ah, uh, so you did some reshoots too. Yeah. Great. Yeah. 
Well, you mentioned Alien, uh, and I've never really heard you talk about this before, but you were attached to do an Alien sequel, and it got pretty far down the line. Tell me about that experience, where it was going, and why it didn't. I mean, you know, the thing that's interesting is moving forward now, because I've, I've been, I haven't directed anything that's a feature for, for five years, um, or that's been out for five or six years. And I've, I've had a lot of time to just sort of sit and think and mess around with oats and get my thoughts straight. And there's kind of like, there's a negativity that I find with Alien and with, with, with Chappie that sort of, I just feel like, I have spoken about it before and I'd rather just leave it because there's nothing really else left to say about it, if that makes sense. And it, it's one of those things where the IP is so beloved and it's so large that, that it, it sort of never, it never goes away. It just follows me around. And it's like, I want to sort of close that chapter and just work on new stuff. I understand. Uh, does the same go with RoboCop? RoboCop, uh, yeah, I mean, RoboCop was a case of, I just wanted to direct something that had um, more of a horror slant to it before I went and did something that was so sort of robotically science fiction oriented again. What I was going to do was I was going to do a sequel to Verhoeven's RoboCop that started the next day. Uh -huh. um, and also it was, it's the only film I've ever uh, been, you know, connected to where I was trying to emulate a different filmmaker's style. Like I would have done everything I could have to make it feel like Verhoeven had directed it. Um, and, and which includes this crazy retro future approach where you would have to get the production designer to, you'd have to lock the production designer into 1987. And then, and then not let him use anything beyond 1987, but try to imagine a future, right? Uh -huh. Like, which is a very cool uh, design challenge. So the only thing that I would have used that would have been modern would be instead of stop motion with Ed 209, like the first one I would have done computer graphics to just smooth that off, but everything else would have, would have uh, felt like Verhoeven. Um, but MGM wanted to, you know, they just wanted to move quickly and shoot it. And I wanted to do something that was slightly more horror based uh, or, 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 you know, just a different genre slightly um, and then come to it. So they just moved on essentially because I didn't feel like doing it right away. Well, tell me your so it's not that It's not that negative, I guess. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. Um, tell me your experience of seeing your first feature film with your first audience seeing District 9 play with an audience for the first time, because everything you'd done before that was either on the small screen or it was somebody else's movie or yeah. whatever. This, you wrote and directed, it's your baby. And now here it is going out to the public for the first well, time. Well, I mean, I, you know, it's funny because I can't imagine a more perfect way to have done that than the way that it played out, which was, which was Sony flew Peter and I to, uh, to Comic-Con in 2009 and we played it for a comic-con audience in, in its entirety and um when i was saying that 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 peter had shielded us from any any studio notes i i mean i mean that to the point where we didn't really even do friends and family screenings like we did nothing like we we edited it at at his uh, uh post-production facility and you know, the, I even had concerns and so did Shalta that the audience wouldn't even understand the, offer, the somewhat Afrikaans accents in the movie. That, that's how untested it was. So we, uh, we did a presentation and then we played it for an audience uh, 
in the evening and got an awesome response. So it's it's hard to imagine doing that in in any way that would have been better than that, you know, which was really cool. Well, Comic-Con is a great place because there are thousands of people in the theater and they want what you're giving them. They, they're they the most receptive and appreciative yeah. audience. If you give them what they want, yeah. they, they will love you back. Unless you don't give them what they want. <laughs> well, then that's another story entirely. So the success of that leads you to um, Elysium, you're doing a movie star movie now for the first time. And tell me how that uh, is a change in course for you. I mean, you know, the thing that is interesting about Elysium and really about filmmaking in general is as long as you, you people talk about the, the, the scale of films, um, you know, Elysium, the amount Sony paid for it, I think they paid somewhere around 100 million or 115 million or somewhere in there. And when you talk about films, you know, go, going from going from short films to District Nine being about thirty million, and then a hundred million dollar film. If you set it up correctly, it should feel somewhat intimate, and it should feel like the film hasn't run away from you. Interestingly, Halo would probably have felt like it had run away from it, right? That would have been a case of you know, you you you. I could see that becoming a very very political environment for a host of different reasons. So if you go in with your own idea and your own script and the studio uh, is, is backing you, um, the, the filmmaking process can still feel relatively intimate and quite like you're still maintaining a vision and maintaining control. Right. A shooting day is still a shooting. Yeah, day. exactly. And you're still, you're still talking to the actors the same way. Nothing's really different. So I never, there was never a scale issue with Elysium. I think I th the only issue with it was, um, was the studio tampered with the ending of the film? Well, once we were in post, I'm not talking about during shooting, mm -hmm. uh, in a way that that kind of somewhat damaged a little bit of how uh, the theme of the film was meant to come across. And, I, and, and that taught me a lesson, which is regardless of how much control you think you have over it, ultimately, and this is, a, this is I mean, you know, this goes without saying that you're making the film for the audience you should just keep your eye on that from a director's perspective in a way that you get what you what you're trying to say across and not let the studio manhandle the ending which is which is what ended up happening because i didn't have final cut on it mm -hmm. um a lot of the rest of the film is pretty much exactly how i think i wanted it to be uh it meaning meaning even if there's faults with it now that i can evaluate at the time i was still doing what i wanted to do so yeah, I, the making of that film was, you know, was just a large process that was, I mean, a lot of it was very rewarding. And, and, and again, it's like you're just learning as you go through the process, you know. Yeah, it's not so much the difference in size, although that does play into it. But you're also working with a movie star and a movie star is more important than the writer or the director uh, to the studio people. And I just wondered... You know, I've had different experiences with different level of actors in the movies and television that I've done. Mm. I wondered if this was a new experience that you were prepared for. And you had good luck of having somebody terrific to work with. Yeah, I think that's what it comes down to. You know, if, if, if you think of it like a situation where your actors are there to, to help you realize the vision and, and if, you, if you get the right people in your corner uh, who, you know, everyone is just part of the same team, you're in a good place. And I definitely had that with, with Matt and with Jody and with Shaw, you know, all of them were, they just wanted to 
facilitate what I was trying to make. So I, that was, I mean, that was really, you know, that was, that was, I don't know if it was luck so much as, as being aware of, I, I know how skewed it can go on set if you're not clever about how you set up the team that you're building. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I felt, I felt pretty supported by, by all of them. And I really liked working with all of them. You know, I actually really miss Mexico City because we spent, I, I was there, I was in Mexico City for probably like four months during the making of that. And, and I, it was really cool to be shooting in that location. So I would, I would like to go back there at some point. Well, having a great cast is so important to you. So when you get on the set every day, everybody's on the same page with yeah. you, an enthusiasm, and it really runs through the entire crew when there's that that sense of togetherness of of all joining in and making a movie together that yeah. that's special, you know. Yeah, no, totally. And uh, you know, I felt that way with everyone that was there. Um, everyone was 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 supportive and and just very cool to work with i mean i'm a, I'm a massive fan of jodie foster as well i, I wish yeah. i could find something i emailed her recently actually about a film idea for something um which which i think she was sort of lukewarm on <laughs> but uh but yeah i definitely want to find something to do with her i i just uh just love working with her What's your favorite part of the process? Is it writing? Is it uh, scouting locations? Is it working with the actors? Is it the shooting? Is it getting into the visual effects? Is it the post-production, the music? You know, there's so many elements to making a movie. Mm. And uh, what is it that you most look forward to doing? I think at this point, interestingly, it's changed to actually being shooting. There's, there's something about mounting the scale of production and I like I like the level of focus that it requires, where it's where it engulfs everything to do with your life. Yes. Um, you know, I, I really like that. I like I like kind of leaving set late and like having a beer with the camera crew. You know, standing looking at a sunset when when gear is getting packed up, and I just I just like the process of shooting. And I think before I didn't enjoy it as much because maybe it just comes with experience. I don't know what it is, but I I, I think shooting is probably my favorite phase now. Post-production is super fun too, because you get to put things together uh, and that can be really re rewarding, but it isn't as intense. I kind of, I like the intensity. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It becomes a runaway train, a guided runaway train. Once you start production that first mm -hmm. day, there's no stopping. You're, mm -hmm. you're on the, uh, on the downhill slide, mm -hmm. and, but in a good way. And it can either get out of control or it can just speed right into it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty fascinating when you watch things like uh, like Lust in La Mancha, you know, or uh, yes, or Dark Souls, where where it goes awry. Yeah, it's like, yeah. okay, let's not have that happen. Yeah, Peter Medak made a great movie about the pirate movie, a documentary about the pirate movie he was making with Peter Sellers that never. Uh, oh, I haven't seen that. that oh, it's brilliant. Uh, now, why can't I remember the name of it? But look it up. It's it's okay. Peter Medak's most recent documentary, and it's just great about how this train wreck happened uh, when he was <laughs> making this this comedic uh, pirate movie with Peter Sellers. It's yeah. Really yeah. Well, I know. I mean, I don't know if it has to do with Peter Sellers, but I know that he was he was quite difficult. Yeah, I love well, him. But, this shows it. This shows yeah. all of those sides of him: the brilliance, the neurosis, and the neurosis and the man. Yeah. So, who are your heroes? Who are the 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 people who've most inspired you? That the, what are the movies they've made that that really excited you and make you want to be in that that group of filmmakers? 
I think, you know, initially I would say Ridley Scott and still Ridley Scott would probably be very, very high on that list for me. Um, I, I also love the work with as well. Oh, you mean on Alien? Yeah, you were able to work with him because you were part of his commercial directors group. Right. And right, right, right. Yeah, I remember I remember when I met him when I signed on to RSA, which was pretty awesome. I mean, he was definitely one of my, you know, one of my go-to filmmakers that just had a huge effect on me. Um, but I one of the things I love about Ridley is also the the variety of films that he does and the types of movies, right? There's it's a really wide breadth of different uh genres and 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 tones and subject matters. Yeah. So he's he's high on the list. Um, James Cameron is really high on the list. Uh, I love Tarantino. I love Scorsese. I think. Um, I'm trying to think about like when I was younger. Fincher had a huge effect on me actually when I was younger. I love I love Fincher's early films. I mean, I like all of his films, but films like Seven. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it would be in that camp. You know, I think one of my favorite films of all time is Dr. Strangelove. Yes. So, so there's, there are certain Kubrick films as well that, that are, you know, massively impactful. Uh, yeah, it'd be that group. Well, you started out making short films and commercials and doing visual effects and the like. Then you went on to big budget studio movies. Now, You've just come out of the pandemic having made a very DIY movie. Yeah. Um, tell me about going back to your roots and making something small and intimate and, and how that came about and the actual process of producing a movie during the time of the pandemic. Well, you know, for the longest time, I, I've always been very interested in what the filmmakers of Paranormal Activity and the Blair Witch Project did in, in terms of self-financed films that that elicit a lot of terror in the audience. I just, I thought that was a very interesting concept. Um, and I always, in the back of my head for years, I've wanted to try to do that. So with the pandemic, it was a case of, instead of sitting around while clearly the film industry is, is you know, and a lot of industries are, are on pause until we understand what's going on. Why don't we shoot something this in the same spirit uh, where it's self-financed and we can just put, Put something together and, and go off and do it so that's really where the idea initially came from and i was very into the idea of trying to create a different tone to the other films that i had done in in a way that i wanted the film to feel very measured and slower and to be more of a, a more of a, a tightening of screws and a slower burn um and so from a filmmaking challenge perspective that was what you know, drew me to wanting to do it, I guess, was just creating the sense of brooding uh, tension that sort of was lying underneath the imagery and, and just sort of simmering. So initially it was gonna be uh, found footage like those other two films I referenced. And then um, it, was, it was a super weird film in the sense that it was like painting by numbers because it was, it was initially self-financed. So it was a case of, well, we have this location, we have access to this location, we have access to this vehicle, we have this, we have that. And we, I, I, most of the, almost all of the actors I had worked with before, and they all come from this kind of oats mentality where, uh, where I knew that in a lower budget environment, they would be really supportive, like we were talking about earlier and really easy to work with and kind of, you know, may, help me make the film under, under difficult circumstances. So, 
so I kind of, I knew I wanted to use Carly in the lead and I knew I wanted to use Michael Rogers and um, I just kind of put them all up on a board and I put the locations up on the board. And then my brother and I had this real-time computer graphics idea that we wanted to do. Um, so I knew there'd be computer graphics in it that looked like real-time footage. So I just sort of pasted it all together and came up with what the story for Demonic is. And then, you know, we, I think we shot it in June. So if you think March is really when everything started to shut down, um, June was when we shot it. And then we did, we did the volumetric capture, I think either in August or July. Uh, and, and then it's, it's incredibly humorous to me that a low budget film has 15 minutes of computer graphics in it. Yes, which is, you know, kind of a bit of a, it's a bit counterintuitive, but it took eight months to do that with this awesome uh, company in the Czech Republic called UPP. Wow. Yeah. And then, you know, we completed it. Well, it's interesting because the, um, the visual effects are intentionally, they go from really high end to very low fi. Yeah. And it must've been a lot of fun for you to, to mess around with that. And yeah, I mean, the process that we were using is actually relatively cutting edge. It's called volumetric capture as opposed to motion capture. And because of where it's at, because it's so, it's so early, there's, there's inherently a ton of errors and glitches and the resolution just isn't really where it should be. But, but you it, kind of embrace that. Yeah, I knew, I knew that if we were to write that into the script in a way where it felt like a prototype piece of technology, that the audience would go along with it. And that's really how we approached it. You know, it was like, let's just embrace all of the, the, the glitches and the errors. But uh, your films almost always embrace technology um, or reject technology. Right. But uh, in this case, this is probably your most blatantly horrific film. It's a true, it's truly a horror film. And with the title Demonic, it should be. Yeah. Tell me about that experience and about being your own boss. You have nobody to answer to but yourself when you're self-financed. Well, actually, um, the film that I was going to do before the pandemic uh, was financed by a company called AGC with Stuart Ford. And when the pandemic hit and everything was put on pause, I told them I was going to go do this. So they were interested in matching the amount that we had put in. Huh? And so we effectively doubled our budget. So. That's why I said it was initially self-financed and then its, it's budget you know, increased by, it, it doubled. And so uh, at, at that point, you're sort of, you're just partners with, with AGC and they would give me thoughts on, you know, if the edit was moving in a direction that was you know, too slow or so we would bounce thoughts back and forward like that. So it, it, it still did feel very creative though. Well, often a lower budget gives you doesn't give you the ability to use um, things that cost a lot as a crutch. You're mm -hmm. relying on your ingenuity. So tell me how production differed for you in this regard when you don't have a studio behind you and you have your imagination and a limited pocketbook. You know, I think everything really came down to this idea of just trying to create a sense of unease the whole time. And I, and I think regardless of what your budget level is, you, you can definitely pull that off in a low budget environment. Uh, so hopefully the audience feels the sense of like dread that's just sort of bubbling there the whole time. Uh, the, 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 the place, I, we tried obviously as hard as we could to make the production level look as high as quality, as, as, as high quality as possible. But um, 
the danger with that is that maybe the audience is expecting more in the third act that you just can't deliver because it's not set up that way. But I thought, let's just, instead of purposefully making it look cheap, let's just make it look as good as we can make it look for the money that we have. Uh, which, which, you know, actually is a really awesome way to sharpen your own skills when you, like this film that I may go on to now is a $60 million budget film. And it's like, you can use a lot of the, the hone sharpening that you've just done on something super low budget to kind of get more out of that. And I, I actually, I love the idea of oscillating between two different budget levels like that. And sort of, yeah. I just, it keeps you, it keeps you agile, you know? Yeah. keeps you sharp. Yeah. What have you not done as a filmmaker that you're dying to still do? I, I definitely comedy, I think. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But fucked up, weird comedy. It's probably <laughs> only funny to me. <laughs> Anything you could relate that to? Um, I mean, if you watch God on Oats or you watch Cooking with Bill, like in that direction, I sort of, you know, yeah, I mean, God would be good. So I think it's a mixture of, of dark, pessimistic philosophy mixed with ridiculous slapstick, <laughs> you know, a layer of, of ridiculousness, Monty Python over the top of it. Um, I'd like to do a war film, dead serious war film I would love to do. I love the genre of, of war film. Yeah, what have you seen lately that has stimulated you? I, I think probably in the last few years, the, the best film I've seen in, in, in the genre of war would be, would be Fury, I would say. Mm. Yeah, okay. I, really, I really liked uh, I liked Fury. Black Hawk Down is one of my favorite films ever. Really um, again, yeah. Yeah, so that would be another genre. I'm, I mean, I love horror. I would love to, I, I know that this film isn't explicitly horror because it has, it has thriller and science fiction elements, but um, yeah, I, I mean, even fantasy, you know, all, all, of, the, all of the above. Great, well, yeah. Neil, thank you so much for joining us here and talking about your work. I can't wait to see what's next and to see what the audience reaction is to Demonic. Yeah, thank you. It's exciting. Thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure and great to meet you. Thanks, Neil. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.